Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Thank you for joining us on another midweek Bible study as we go through the New Testament in the order in which the books were written. First Peter chapter 2 is where we start today, and it's going to be chock full of stuff that if we really decided to dissect this, it, it would take us weeks. But we're not going to do weeks, are we? We're going to fly over this as we normally do at about 20,000 feet. But we'll pick up some points here and there that might interest you and, and might tempt you to do some further study. Plus, you can always send in questions about particulars. You can send them directly to me, Patrick, at OurSafeHarbor.com. And again, thank you for all of you who subscribe and hit the like button. That helps us a lot on Google to be found by people that are looking for us. And so thank you. I appreciate that. Second Peter chapter 1. Remember that this book is very different from 1 Peter. It is usually thought by theologians to have been written by followers of Peter. And they were addressing a particularly very dark time in early Christianity when some in the faith had fallen away from the faith and taken others with them. There was persecution starting and some people were going along with the persecutors, just going along to get along. Basically, they, they would bow down to the emperor. They would do whatever is necessary to stay alive, keep their job. And we can understand that, even though we would hope we wouldn't do that. We understand it, obviously. But then there were others that were losing their children's and, and children and their wives and their land and their property. And so Christians were starting to go for each other's throat when this was going on. And then whenever people would say, well, I, I was with the accommodation group, and then now I wanna come back in now that things have settled down, the matter of forgiveness was a big issue. So this was a dark time. Understanding that, we approach now a dark book. First, um, Second Peter chapter two. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, oh, who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Let's talk about false teachers. I did more than one who told you about on false teachers over the last two years. And you can find them on the Monday morning messages with no, it's not hard at all to find what you're looking for there. But just to reiterate in the story I've told before, but I'm going to tell it as quickly as I can just to get the point across. East Tennessee is a linguistic bubble. It has some things, expressions there that do not exist elsewhere and they, uh, for example, if, they, if you ask for somebody to pick you up in the morning at 8 o'clock and they say, well, I don't mind to, um, that, that means they're, they're going to be there. Um, it's, it's a rather odd place sometimes, but I love it to pieces. I'll be over there uh, a week after I record this, but about four weeks after you see it. So there you are. Anyway, that's a welcome home tour. I'd love to come see you as well. I, um, 
used to take care of parrots. It was a part of the, uh, just my general love of birds, but also I got uh, hooked into that by a doctor friend of mine who said, listen, you're shrink, you ought to be around parrots. So we did, and we loved it. Well, I was having lunch with a bunch of people after church in Knoxville, Tennessee. When one of the deacons said, and you've got a parrot that you keep, that, that's your own, goes to work with you sometimes. And I said, yes. And they said, well, isn't it ill? And I, I didn't know how to respond. I, I had no idea why one would assume that my parrot was not feeling well, uh, had some sort of disease. And it, we went back and forth for a little bit and, and they were plainly embarrassed that, because they knew they weren't communicating to me and I was getting a little embarrassed until somebody around the table said, oh, he means bad-tempered. Well, over in East Tennessee, to say that someone or something is ill means that they've got a sharp temper they're difficult to get along with. Well, we can always assume we know what people are saying when they use the words they say, but that doesn't necessarily mean we do know what they mean. And in scripture, look it up. You can go the old fashioned way and grab a concordance and look up every time the word false and then it's linked to teacher, false teacher is found. And you'll find that it's not the way we use the term false teacher. We would use the term false teacher, for example, if somebody was teaching the prosperity gospel or was always about the end of time and that they had special knowledge from God about all of this or that they were given a new revelation that you know, they were as high as God or something, we would look upon that and say, okay, false teacher. But we also really snap in awfully fast. And if somebody says we should have the Lord's Supper only on Sunday and another person says you can take it anytime we gather, they point fingers at each other and yell false teacher. But in scripture, that would not apply. False teachers in scripture were people who had false hearts. They were manipulating their position or scripture or both in order to gain financially, in order to gain sexually. There was a, there a lot of that always has been with cults, whether run by men or women, but especially those run by men that uh, then you know, lead away women. And it's just, we've all seen it from Waco to the uh, fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. And it, it always ends horribly for the women involved. Those were false teachers. They're not false because they got a bit of the procedure wrong or they got a bit of the doctrine wrong. You know, I'm a Trinitarian. I believe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were coexistent throughout all eternity and are of the same essence, that they are three and that they are one. There are people who really struggle with that and the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information about how to think about Trinity. And so I understand it when one of my friends might say, well, I believe that Jesus is equal with God, but I believe Jesus was created by God, the firstborn, and they make their arguments. And these are still my friends. I don't point at them and say false teacher, and they don't point at me and say false teacher. Why? We understand that we differ, but we're both trying honestly to look at scripture and the evidence we find there and in our own heart and in nature and come up with a decision. Neither of us is trying to enslave the other or to get money out of the other, to control the other. We're not doing that, we're not false. We're just different. A false teacher is somebody who is using their position and scripture 
in order to gain control over someone else. They do not believe the scripture. They are using it merely as a tool to get power over other people. And so that's what we're looking at here. These false teachers will secretly in, introduce destructive heresies. Heresy is also a word that gets thrown around a lot. You know, somebody can differ like me and my friends who may not quite grasp the Trinity. Um, people yell heretic, and they did. In the early Christian councils, Constantine called one specifically to settle that issue. And the Arians, those who did not believe in a Trinity, lost and lost big time in that council. Now, the, I'm gonna upset some. They didn't lose big time because their argument lost big time as much as they lost big time because the swing of power went to the other side. So just be aware, sometimes a doctrine you think has been sussed out by very honest people. There were a lot of politics behind it and all right. But the word heresy doesn't mean a difference in our view of, of a doctrine or a view of, uh, well, anything actually. Heresy, it, the root here means to divide. If I have a different feeling than you have, and a different, I think feeling's a wrong word. I want to retract that. If I have a different conviction than you do about an issue, and I find that you know, I've come to visit your church, and the people in your church seem to have the same conviction you do, but I do not. However, I agree with you on so much else that I feel I can worship with these people because we're singing hymns to the same God. We believe in the same Jesus. We are, we are people who are sold out for Christ. So, okay, then let's say that you asked me to teach class. Okay, great. What do you want me to teach it on? And let's say you wanted me to teach it on the book of Ezekiel because you don't like me and you wanted me to have a hard job. So I said, all right, great. If I taught Ezekiel, and then found a way to always bring up that point that I differ on with the bulk of the group and insist that it gets shoved in there, whether it belongs in Ezekiel or not, that's being a heretic. I'm being divisive. Now, some churches will use that word and they're using it properly, but they will also use that as a club for power. So you go to a church and you find the leaders will not let a change occur that the most of the people would, would really like, but a few of the big givers or power players won't let them. And so the elders go, no, no, we can't do that. That would be divisive. No, no, that's not heresy. Heresy is whenever you have a doctrine and you've decided it's more important than the community's unity and cohesion. And so you're going to use that to divide and make a following gather a following. There was a huge movement back in the 1970s. I'm not going to call it out by name. It actually ended up with three different names over the years and has since morphed several times. But it was within the religious tribe with which, in which I grew up, and that is the Churches of Christ. And they had decided that their view of evangelism and being totally committed to God was different. And they would go in and actively try to split and take over churches so that they could have the building and they could have the center. And it, it just was incredibly destructive. And then found that the leader was not being an honest 
player in some ways and found that some, and it all began to fizzle and fuzz, although remnants of them are still there and some of them are doing amazing good work and rebuking the errors of the past and accepting new lessons that they have learned from all of that and I wish them well. I don't name it because there's no need to go down that rabbit hole. But here they would come in and secretly befriend members and then begin to pull them away. I remember I was working with a church in Morgantown, West Virginia, when a minister who had been one of their ministers before and, and beloved, who had gone off with this group, moved back into the area and would go in and try to pick off members saying, hey, let's go camping together. Hey, let's go up to Kennywood, which is a great amusement park since lost, which is a great source of sadness for us. Uh, let's go over here and was befriending them. But fortunately, my members were smart enough to see through the ruse. That doesn't always happen. They're secretly introducing destructive heresies. Doesn't necessarily mean their, dro their doctrines are really big, but their way of life is false. The way of life is underhanded. That's what we're going for. So we should not be yelling heretic at each other unless we see people using their doctrine to gain power that does not rightly belong to them or gain control over people or divide churches. I actually did a, um, a blog years and years ago asking, why do you care what I teach? Because I get a fair amount of hate mail and a fair amount of you've gone too far and we're, we're away from you now. And, that, and I'm sorry, but that's okay. That's fine. Everybody makes their own way through this world. And a whole lot of people have never heard of me and they're doing just fine. But people um, would say, well, you can't do this. And, and I would write back and say, why do you care what I teach? You're the minister over your church. You're, you are an elder or you're a bishop or you're, you already have a life and a job. Why, why would you care what I think about any of this? unless you think what I'm teaching is a threat, but I've never gone to any of your members and asked them to join us. I've never gone to any of your members and asked them to listen to me, not to you. We're not trying to divide churches. We're trying just in fact, just to be Christian in a pure post-COVID, post-Christian age in the, in the West. They generally would come back with, well, you're being a heretic. And after a while, the dog chasing its tail loses the novelty. Uh, friends, don't yell false teacher and her heresy at people. Be very careful unless they are like the leader at Waco was or like the leader of the fundamental Latter-day Saints uh, who uh, had dozens and dozens of wives, many of them children. Um, and he's in prison today and, and deserves to be there. He used his doctrine to control them. Have a look at some of those documentaries if you want to be, see what a false teacher is. They then bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. This is a very Jewish concern, which I wish was a more general concern. In the Old Testament, time after time, the people would want to do something and then not do it because it would bring the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, the Father, into disrepute. 
and there were a couple times where God was started to, had started to do something, and they would, you know, like Moses, uh, he, he told Moses, I'm just going to kill these people and raise up a new nation through you. And Moses goes, no, no, the word of that will get out and your reputation will be tarnished. The, think about that. How, how would you be different if you believed everybody you met knew you were a follower of Jesus and therefore every decision you made in public and private needed to be made in such a way that it would bring good things to Christ and it would never harm his reputation. A good friend of mine, a minister, uh, has always had a heart for the homeless, the sex workers, the addicts. And he talked about, and by the way, Philip Yancey did this as well in a book, um, about reaching out to a sex worker who was in a crisis and they helped them and the person thanked them and then they invited them to come to worship with them. One of them, uh, I believe it was the Philip Yancey example, said, why in the, would I want to go there? Don't you think I'm judged enough? Don't you think that they look down on me enough where I am? I don't have to go in there where they can all do it at once. Her idea of Christians was judgmental folk who looked down on her and who would not want her around. That's heartbreaking. Somehow Christ got a bad reputation with this particular woman. The other one, she actually made it to the parking lot where she started to shudder and th started throwing up, so terrified of how she was gonna be treated inside. We need to live in such a way that even people we don't understand, uh, even people that we were even a little frightened of, they still know we're gonna love them and take care of them because we follow Christ and we're giving Christ a good reputation. Look at the last half of Matthew 25. Those people on the day of judgment had given God a good reputation by the way they lived. So we need to be careful about that. I was, um, speaking of Knoxville, um, oh, this has gotta be a long time ago. It's gotta be 12, 13, 14 years ago at least that I was across to Knoxville to speak for uh, a week, I believe. And I went into my hotel, and this was back before the days of, of uh, cell phones. Um, you know, 2007 changed everything. We had cell phones, but they didn't connect to the internet, and they didn't show us pictures, and so we couldn't you know, watch our tellies uh, on, on, the, on a laptop or anything like that. So instead, you had to do what, you know, what? many, many generations of traveling people had to do in hotels, and that is try to find something good on television. Now, Knoxville at that time, have no idea about now, but Knoxville at that time had like six or seven religious stations on their cable. It's like, you know, those cable systems that say, look at all of our channels, but 20 of them are some version of home shopping, you know, uh, but this was, was God shopping, I guess. And so I turned, and yeah, back then, this particular one, you actually had to turn a little handle to do this and hit the buttons. It was a primitive time. Every one of the preachers was, was mad at me for some reason. Well, not mad at me particularly. I don't think they knew I existed, but their style of preaching was yelling and pointing and whoa, and, and it was like, I, I remember calling my wife that night and saying, I can see why people don't believe in God or want anything to do with any Christians at all because everyone that I saw 
on my just, I'm just trying to find a ball game, was angry, was mad, or was making fun of non-believers, or was putting on a show that we would have said was inappropriate in any other locus. The yelling and the posturing and the faces and the, and you're going, well, no, no, this isn't Jesus. And it's giving them a bad reputation. So continuing, many who follow their way will, will bring the truth into disrepute. And in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. It's a Semitic way of saying, uh, like the Sword of Damocles, if you know any of classical literature, uh, where a sword is hanging over a fellow suspended by a thread. And that changed his behavior dramatically uh, because the sword was over there. Well, this is hanging over them. They don't know this, but destruction is creeping from one side and their condemnation is coming from the other. They are falling into the trap of the devil. And they think that so far they've gotten away with it. What they don't know is that their vengeance uh, is already approaching. For God did not, here's where we get into really interesting bits, all right? If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And now we have to stop. Does it say hell? You know, it actually doesn't. The word hell, uh, generally in uh, the New Testament, in the Old Testament, you would call it Sheol, means going down to death, the place of death. Now, very much the people of the New Testament were people of their age, and they knew what had been taught ever since Plato about hell and about Sheol, we can call it any name you want to, the waiting place of the dead was a miserable place, a place where you were trapped. Communication was merely mournful, if there was any at all. You would see each other only as shadows. And to Plato and, and to the Greek philosophers of the day, this was generally your best outcome because the other one would be to be thrown down to a deeper area that's called Tartarus. Now, in the New Testament, in the Greek, the word Tartarus as a noun does not occur. It only occurs as a verb. And so here, he threw them down to Tartarus. Now, they believe Tartarus was a much lower area than this shade-filled, mournful waiting place of the dead. Again, which was, they thought, the best option. And waiting for what was not exactly you know, Plato thought you just stayed there forever, um, unless you were one of the titans or you were one of the, the, the grand ones. And, and I'm not sure how all that would work because Plato himself seemed to be a bit confused. But Greek philosophy just infused the first century and they absolutely adopted some of these pictures. And to them, they said that if an anvil were to be dropped from heaven, it would take nine days to hit the earth. So that's how far heaven is above earth. But if you were on earth and you dropped an anvil to Tartarus, that was another nine days. So as far below you as the heavens are above you is Tartarus. It, is, uh, it does go here and say, 
putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Well, the Second Peter and Jude seem to have been mining the same material. Jude much, much more succinctly than Peter. But um, the, the idea at the time was that when the angels rebelled against God, that some of them were loosed and some of them were chained. Why were some chained? They actually wrote a lot about that, but it's all, none of it's in the Bible, and it's all very speculative. Uh, I think it would have to be. Uh, they would say, well, maybe these angels are just too powerful to let loose, or perhaps they committed a greater crime against God, but they are chained until the day of judgment. And so there are, peop there are some that were thrown down to dungeons, the gloomy dungeons. I think we can probably assume that's Hades, but there were some that were chained. Those who go down to Tartarus. That's the worst of the worst. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, that would be Mrs. Noah and his sons and their daughters, uh, sons and their daughters, sons and their wives. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was, all right, hang on. When was the last time that you thought Lot was righteous? It's hard to find that in scripture. Now, Abraham always treated him as if he were honorable, good, and as an equal. But all through that story, you can tell, nope, 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 he isn't. Not before he went to Sodom, not in Sodom, and not after Sodom. Can you find a lot of things, anything, redemptive about Lot? I think you could give him just the one, and that is he did try to protect the visitors who entered the city. But that's about it. And yet here he's called a righteous man. I think there's a lot going on here. But one thing you can take comfort from, and that is, do you remember the phrase in Scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. God is so willing to forgive that when you believe in Christ, you are assumed righteous. It is just, it's put into your account. It is, um, you didn't earn it, but it, all of a sudden it is in there. And so let's take a look at what he has to say about Lot. Who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Um, okay, where, where does this come from? And it seems to have come from that crucible of faith, as Philip Jenkins called it in a book, Crucible of Faith, this massive writing program that took place between Malachi and Matthew. And that's just the way we order the books. It's a 400 year period, and especially about a 150 year period of vast writings that were going on from North Africa. And that's really the look, that's most of it. Uh, the, the Jews had settlements, everything from Ele Elephantine Island all the way across. And they wrote and they wrote and they wrote to get their stories and to understand their stories and to fill the gaps. I can remember in the heyday of the New Age movement in the, uh, the 1980s, 
that you could go into any Barnes and Noble or Borders or one of the national bookstores that survived at the, at the time. And there'd be a whole new age sections. There still are some of those in Books A Million or Barnes and Noble. One of the, you, you can still find them, but they used to be a lot bigger. And I could always count on finding at least six, 10, 12 books on Jesus, the lost years because people want to write to fill gaps in. You know, we know Jesus born, we know Jesus around 12, then we see Jesus around 30-ish. And these gaps, you, we want to fill them. And so they were filled with what would it be like? And with Lot, uh, the story of how he interacted with his town. I mean, we know he was accepted by his town because he was sitting at the gate when the visitors came. And sitting at the gate was reserved for the leaders of the town who decided who goes in, who goes out, who is taxed on their produce, uh, all of that sort of thing. So he got on well with the leaders of the town. But for the purposes of this writing team, or Peter, we're going to have to say Lot tried, and he was, he was just mournful about it, and then God had to just come in and sort it out. So this is one of those things that if you just listen to preachers sometimes, you're going to think, all right, that's how that adjusts. We have no real dot to dot on how the lot in Genesis gets to the lot in Second Peter. It's a fascinating story, fascinating concept rather, but we just don't have the story. So let's move on. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. It's a really hard phrase. What the point is that they, they believed that while you were awaiting the big day of judgment, that you were being punished and cleansed right then. Now, some of them believed you were punished and cleansed. Some of them believed you were punished. And then on the day of judgment, you would just be burned up forever, you know, big time punished later on. Uh, the idea of hell being an eternally conscious torment would become popular, but not for really what seven, eight hundred years. The early creeds don't use don't mention anything about punishment for the sinners and a, an eternal hell. The only closest it gets is one of them says that Jesus went into Hades to rescue the souls. So the idea of Plato's hell didn't stick with the church for a long time. And by the way. If you're interested, just to see what they, how scattered they were on this, I'd recommend that you, you even do stuff like Wikipedia, which I don't normally recommend, but you can go to Wikipedia and say, you know, Tartarus, uh, or you can say Hades, or you can say Gehenna, and then look at all the early Christian quotations, and they're all over the map. What happens to us after death is a mystery. We trust God to do the right thing. There are a lot of metaphors, 